Hello, and welcome once again to Farmerama. This week, we hear from a Canadian farm going against the grain and putting purple corn on the map. We take a look at care farming examples from around the world, catch up with a Via Campesina member from Berlin, and we speak to a chef about the unusual dish he put together for the recent Dan Barber food waste restaurant in London. We also have a special treat some poetry written at this year's Oxford Real Farming Conference. First up, we hear from Robin Asquith in Yorkshire. Robin didn't plan to have a career in care farming, but he's now a passionate advocate for it. Here, he explains the benefits to everyone involved for combining farming with social care. My name's Robin Asquith. I'm a care farmer in Brisbane, North Yorkshire, near Whitby. Care farming is a therapeutic use of the natural environment, so providing meaningful work opportunities on farms to adults with disabilities and mental health issues to enable them to um, learn new skills and develop in life and progress, hopefully for some people, into employment or to live more independent lives. Stumbled across it, really. Applied for a job to manage a farm, didn't know a lot about working with people with disabilities but the farm owner was a lady uh, who had disabilities herself and wanted to provide work opportunities for people with disabilities and it, so it was through managing the farm that I started working with adults with disabilities and really enjoyed it and loved it and a lot of job satisfaction and it's just gone on from there really. Uh, Nuffield Farming Scholarship has enabled me to travel uh, for eight weeks abroad in 2016 to research how what role agriculture can play in delivering social care in the UK. So I've been and visited a lot of different farms and countries. I've been to Ireland, America, Canada, Italy and Scandinavia, visiting care farms, regular farms, horticultural enterprises horse rehabilitation centres, all looking at how social care is delivered in the natural environment, basically. When I visited uh, Holland, I was uh, very taken by visiting a large uh, horticultural nursery. And they had 12 acres of greenhouses growing about 70,000 tonnes of tomatoes each year. But their staff workforce was made up of people who were living on the streets in Amsterdam and the homeless. They provided them a safe working environment and paid them a small wage each day. This gave the homeless people an opportunity to work and put something meaningful on their CVs to hopefully build their confidence and their skills so that they could change their lives around and not be homeless anymore. And for the individuals that attended there that were had drug and alcohol problems, the, the company put on rehabilitation in form of uh, addiction courses and things like that. They were picking all 70,000 tonnes worth of tomatoes. These were going primarily into restaurants into Amsterdam and across Holland. They were quite brave to do it. I think a lot of people would in this country think that wouldn't be uh, a thing to do. But it was working and these people were developing and progressing and it was getting them off the streets. It was preventing crime. And it was giving them a purpose in life again and, and that chance to rebuild their lives and make something out of it. I had a brilliant experience in Norway on a farm just, just about 10 minutes drive north of Oslo. 
I went and worked with them for the morning. There was a group of 12 adults living with dementia and we sat and had breakfast with them first and it was just like in any ordinary situation talking and communicating them wanting to know about England and why I've come to Norway and the communication issue with the language barrier was interesting but we managed to get round and then we went on a, on a hike with them around the farm to, to check the farm boundary and then came back and did a little bit of, of gardening for all those adults there it was hugely beneficial for them because it got them out of the house it kept them active it gave them something sort of purposeful to do and they were making new friends and sort of being active is quite important when you're old and I think in some cases people living with dementia lack the access to be active and be outdoors in Norway it's hugely important for them to be outdoors and be in nature and go for a walk it's very much part of their culture so it was great that they could access the the farm in Norway they were just so accepting of people on the farm in this country some farmers are maybe not too keen on accepting people onto the farm but in Norway it was just there's a lot of open access land there and people are just accepting of it and feel it's a positive benefit to have people on the farm because it brings that social and cultural element back to the farm which with mechanisation has sort of disappeared a little bit. Well, since I've returned from my Nuffield studies I've taken on a new job for the Camp Hill Village Trust based in Botton Village and we've established a, a new care farm there and sort of rolling this out hopefully into some of our other workshops and land-based activities so it's big leap uh, but also at home with my wife uh, we're developing um, day opportunities on our farm at the weekend and also have longer term plans of developing a, a shop in a similar format to what I saw when I visited Italy selling social farming products that have come from social farms but the shop being run by people with a disability or mental health issue to help them develop and progress and give them something meaningful to do. First thing to do is go and visit an existing care farm, understand it a little bit more and, and see how it does. You, to, to start a care farm you've got to want to do it. It's a very beneficial thing but you need to look what is in your area. Is there a demand for it? Is there a need for it? And what type of client group do you want to work with? Because there's many different client groups from learning disability to acquired brain trauma to dementia, drug and alcohol addiction. There's, there's a whole range that care farms can benefit people. So you, you need to narrow it down. What's your skill sets and which sort of area do you want to focus on? And just get some advice. Sign up to Care Farm in UK and they can offer help and advice with resources and webinars on helping set up uh, care farms. Robin Asquith with his experience and thoughts about care farming. And we'd like to say a really special thank you to Robin for sending in that recording. He contacted us out of the blue on Twitter. It's really important to us to help farmers get their voice heard. So if you'd like to feature on the programme, then please do get in touch. And we'll work with you to give you the support you need to get a recording together. Abby, what are the things that you picked up on in that? It was really exciting to hear about Robin's experiences, multiple experiences around the world of many different ways that farming can provide a care aspect to many different communities, parts of the community, and 
different ways people are vulnerable and farming can be a healing for that in a way. And it's nice to be aware in a lot of what we're doing is being aware of the importance that farming plays in our lives and how it impacts us. I think it's nice to see how the rest of society can can give back and contribute to what's going on out there in the countryside. Yeah, and I'm particularly excited about people suffering from dementia and how care farming can support um, that growing segment of society. Almost all of my grandparents towards the end of their lives uh, suffered from dementia and it's incredibly difficult to support them. And I think I can see the beauty of being able to be outside, be together with many people and not have your memory loss be a barrier to contributing and participating I think that's an amazing opportunity and kind of a wonderful niche that care farming can offer. I agree. And I think the other thing that I would say is that I think it's a it's a stereotype, but definitely one that's true, that farming can be actually quite a lonely profession. Like there's lots of people out there on their own doing doing stuff that there's often not people around. And I think that's getting more and more in this day and age. And I think it's it's nice to to that something like this can actually bring people to a farm and make it feel like a community and like something which is alive with people as well as alive with potatoes and sheep. And I think the important thing to stress, and I think Robin does a good job of this, is that it's part of an economically sustainable farm. You know, care farming is also providing a service to the community that you can be financially, you know, pay, you're paid for that service that you provide to the community. And it's probably a heck of a lot cheaper than, you know, what's provided on the NHS. So I think that's a very interesting perspective um, that we as a society and country can hopefully explore further. Paula Joya, who's originally from Brazil, is a member of the Bean and Verder Collective. Oh, I hope I said that right. <laughs> the Bean and Verder Collective Farm near Berlin. She's also an activist with Germany's Small Farmers Association that is a member of Livia Campesina, the global peasants movement. Paula spoke to Darla Eno for Farmerama about the importance of international solidarity between small-scale farmers and the challenge of balancing activism with farm work. She begins by explaining the link between language and her identity as a farmer, and in particular, the role of the word peasant or bauer in German. I know it's important to use this word to reclaim a kind of identity that has been lost in the past of the last, I don't know, decades. I don't know how long was this process in the English language, but what I know is that like in other languages, there is also two or more different words to express the profession or the identity of a person who works in agriculture activities and that we as Via Campesina members understand ourselves not as a big farmer so uh, we claim or we use this word that express also a kind of identity you know that's uh, the word campesino in Spanish or 
Camponese in Portuguese or Paisan in French, you know. So in Germany where I live, we also have two different words. We have Landwirt and we have Bauer. Landwirt is a much more like formal word. For example, the profession you study in the university. But Bauer is a much more like, you know, you can have just learned this from your former generations, you know. It's a kind of identity. Although German is also not my native language, that's what I hear when I tell the world I'm a Bäuerin. That's the, the female form for Bauer. I immediately think biodiverse ecosystem. I think about myself. I think about elder people, you know, keeping, doing agriculture, who have some fruit trees and a small garden, who have a chicken, some ducks, maybe one milk cow. So I think about this diversity in one ecosystem. When I say landwirt, I immediately think about machines. I guess with peasants it might be similar in the English language. Via Campesina was born from this understanding that solidarity among peasants from the north and the south is extremely important. It was in the beginning of the 90s. They realized at that time that in the context of increasing neoliberalism and born of the WTO and all those issues, that the problems, the challenges we were facing at that time were quite similar in the different parts of the world. So they realized it would be important to get together and to develop common strategies to build alternatives and to achieve change. From this gathering, Via Campesina launched the several important struggles and especially the concept of food sovereignty. I think uh, solidarity is intrinsic for Via Campesina, yeah? And also for myself, when I'm doing my work, I know that, uh, for example, in terms of Europe, where the way of consumption is extremely absurd. <laughs> There was also another panel with uh, someone explaining about bananas or chocolates or sugar or coffee, you know. They are not for feeding the world anymore. They, they turn into commodities, you know, and we just expect it to have them whenever, wherever we are and we want them, you know. In terms of solidarity, I know that this kind of consumption we have here is affecting very much the social relations and environmental relations as well of my compañeros, you know, in the south. I come from the urban areas, yeah? My decision to go into agriculture was very much political. It was, oh, no, I want to change something here and with my own hands, you know, and to do something that makes sense. And I realized food production is essential, you know. And so the decision of being a farmer was political decision for solidarity as well, you know. Whenever I'm working in my local or national context or when I am in the European or international context, you know, I'm, of course, trying to achieve positive change here in my local, national or European context, but knowing that this will have a direct, direct consequence for people and environment in the South as well. Mm -hmm. So... I think uh, solidarity is something that is intrinsic to, to our work. And I think this is fundamental that all the people struggling for food justice and also for nutritious food for themselves 
also are able to go a bit a step ahead, you know, because our society is also very egoistic, huh? and we are very much thinking about, ah, the health of my body, you know, but it goes much further. When we realize this, our, our engagement gets much stronger and more powerful. I think uh, we can just manage this if we do not build a movement just on some single persons. It's not a matter of having stars. It's a matter of having a grassroots movement where we can like, cooperate with each other and strengthen each other together. I think there are, of course, periods where you or me or someone else is more engaged. I live in a community farm, so there are people at home who understand the importance of the work outside the farm, the political work outside the farm, and they say, you go, we stay here, you know. But I know that for other people, which do not have this privilege of being in a farm with uh, so many backups, you know, so for me it's also a responsibility. It's also important to always to be already thinking about people to replace me, you know, when I will not be here anymore. It's not about having a big personality, you know, a big person that is, you know, prominent. It's about having a person to carry on the work. You know, of course, this is a challenge, you know, and I heard from other comrades from from my uh, local organization some months ago. We had a workshop exactly on this, how to to keep this balance. And they they were saying, yeah, there's no balance when you are doing this activist work. You have really to go into this, you know, and the farm for a certain period is, how do you say, um, is second. That was Darla Eno speaking to Paula Joya. The soil never sleeps. In its voids, gas and waters gather, waiting for thirsty roots to crawl down motorway tunnels dug by worms. For the spade, the plough, the massage press of hooves. For the rain to run through its seams and seeds to push up to the light. The soil never sleeps. It banks lives in its souffle stomach, connects them to everything. Even the dirt beneath fingernails, the dirt caught in a mole's coat, sings with a million microbes to the gram of connections, growth. The soil never sleeps, never slips into ideology or nostalgia. It is place and purpose, the perfection of decay. A story that shifts from mouth to mouth. A crucible for rebirth. A rooftop on another world. The Soil Never Sleeps by Adam Horowitz. Recorded this year at the Oxford Real Farming Conference. Wasted was a temporary restaurant which made its home at the London department store Selfridges earlier this year. Farm-to-table chef Dan Barber and his team popped over from New York and worked with UK-based chefs to craft dishes using waste products. This included everything from tons of broken shortbread biscuits, which couldn't be sold, to sugar beet pulp burgers. Dan Barber is famous for his rotation risotto which combines the cover crops and grains from one year's crop rotation into a single dish, 
The plate is literally a reflection of the sustainable farming practices going on in the field. Rotation Risotto celebrates, both economically and through sharing the story, the hard work the farmer is putting in to grow the raw ingredients and keep the soils healthy. Tom Hunt was one of the guest chefs at the restaurant, and he crafted a dish inspired by Dan Barber's Rotation Risotto. I headed over to Wasted to hear about it. I practice a style of cooking which I call root fruit eating, which means to value the whole ingredient. It's to eat whole foods, but also to eat holistically and consciously, being aware of where your food comes from and how it made it to your plate and all of the complex and varied issues that might have kind of happened to the food on its journey to, to, to its, to, before it kind of came and, and sat in front of you. The dish I'm making is a celeriac porridge with a mushroom tea. And rather than just using regular oats, which you can use in this dish and are delicious, um, I've decided through working with um, Dan Barber's team, I've decided to use spelt and rye from Gilchester's Organics. So I'm going to make a porridge base with that, with the celeriac, also some mushrooms which have been grown on coffee grounds. So also, Gilchester's have been kind enough to give us some of the clover that they grow on their land in between the, the different rotations of their grains, which of course are in, like bring back a lot of um, nitrogen and nutrients back into the soil in between the crop rotations, which is such an important part of organic farming. Porridge is kind of very, very simple. It's incredibly unctuous and rich and is fortified with parmesan rinds that are cooked in, into the porridge that give it that kind of richness that you need for such a simple dish. But it's all topped, what I think is nice, with local foraged ingredients to the farm, including the clover. So it's kind of like its own ecosystem on a plate, in a sense. It's kind of representing the farm and the clovers, the clovers on there too, because that's part of the whole rotation and what the farm is growing, which is obviously so important to represent. Too often we dictate what what we want to put on our menus, what ingredients we need to buy to the farmer when, as Dan Barber says, we should perhaps be listening to them and, and seeing what products they have that we can use or that don't have a, a dem enough demand for. For any chef that really cares about their food and ingredients, it's having a relationship with the farmer and what they grow can only improve the food that you're serving in your restaurant and your own enjoyment cooking it because that knowledge helps you diversify and create new dishes and and yeah truly represent what what is growing in our own country and around our local area if it's edible then the the chances a good chef can make it tasty even if it's not necessarily a, a kind of sought after ingredient for its particular sweetness or whatever i mean clover is quite an astringent herb or or plant and you don't even want to eat too much of it but it's an incredibly interesting thing to put on the plate because it creates discussion and in small quantities i believe it can taste nice and it's interesting to go beyond just a straight boring plate of food that 
isn't gonna challenge the customer or any anyone and to put something interesting and new onto a plate through chefs and farmers working closely together you can kind of i think come up with a more um successful kind of farming system where everything's being utilized and and kind of made the most of and celebrated importantly that was tom hunt from when i met him at wasted so this is interesting but this is kind of you know they're making a point that this is this this sounds good in the media i mean people in restaurants is one thing but really affecting how we how we plan and cook in our own plan meals and cook in our own home is a is a different kettle of clover <laughs> okay well interesting i completely agree in a way that you know a lot of this is is an art and not most of us are not doing art every evening in the kitchen speak for yourself <laughs> okay uh, yeah sometimes sometimes we're inspired but so there has to be a certain practicality to eating um, but on the other hand I do think that you know just Tom Hunt garnishing something with clover that will make a difference to people because suddenly certain people will start saying oh I want to try using clover in my dish and then there, that starts to make a market for clover as a new ingredient that's possible. Um, and then for farmers, that's great. If a real demand was found, then that could be part of their crop rotation. You know, some of it probably goes to feed anim their own animals or they want to leave it in the soil for the nitrogen content. But then some of it could also be harvested and it could create an economic benefit. So one thing that I that really struck me there is is Tom Hunt did not seem particularly convinced that clover was actually very nice to eat. So how do we should people be encouraged to actually eat things which are not the nicest thing available? Like why why are people going to buy clover rather than buy lamb's lettuce? And should they be making that kind of those kind of choices in their diet? I mean, I think so. I don't ever like the word should. I think it's a difficult word. I think people can choose to add clover to dishes. I think everyone's excited about experiment. Well, almost everyone's excited about experimentation and adding. What I got from Tom was that it added a zing to the dish. You know, that's something else that was a bit like, oh, this is interesting or this is something I haven't tasted before. I mean, I got that too, but I really think that he was spinning that. <laughs> well, I guess we should all go out, taste clover and see what we think. But it, it's like anything. If you put it with the right things, you can, a good chef can make it taste good. And then that's what we can learn from the chefs is, oh, if you put clover with this and this, actually it can taste good. If chefs start using these ingredients, then that's how people will start to use these ingredients. I don't think it will happen the other way around. So we could have in the 90s, there was a sort of cranberry epidemic when Delia started using cranberries. Maybe uh, like beetroot leaves, we can have the same, the same sort of thing going on. Exactly. It's, I do agree with, uh, Dan Barber often references this in some of his books, and I do agree with it that it's so, sort of chef's responsibility to lead the way in 
what ingredients will be used by people. Shelley and Tony Spruitt are from Against the Grain Farm, just outside Ottawa, Canada. And they are very much doing what their name suggests. They still farm uh, the well-known GM corn and soy that their neighbours are still growing, but they're experimenting with some lesser-known grains. And the road hasn't always been easy. Not only have they had to find seed, they're also having to create their own products and build a market to sell into. I'd say Against the Grain was born out of the idea that um, I needed to be a part of the educational process of our food, our grains that the farmer can grow in Ontario, um, the sicknesses that are happening. Is it really the grains, this whole gluten-free movement, or is it more what the next person in the manufacturing is doing to our grains? How are you growing grains here different to anyone else in the area? Well, I think probably what's very different is that um, because there's been no market for barley, nobody's grown this variety of barley specifically. Nobody grows this variety of corn because most people who grow corn on a commercial level grow it uh, for feed consumption as opposed to human consumption. Most of the, the farmers around here and in this whole area, it's all a GMO hybrid corn. I, I just really, really believe in the quality and the uh, health benefits of these grains, especially the barley, the barley flour, because the wheat products uh, that are used in the large-scale, small-scale, home-use um, leave a lot to be desired, I feel, and, and, and raise a lot of questions like where is this epidemic of health issues coming from. And personally, I feel very strongly that the, the bleaching, the chlorinating, the uh, spray downs of the wheat products, uh, the overprocessing of so much of it, I, I believe strongly that it, it is a lot of the problems. It's, you know, filtered. What, what, what's the last drop that makes the buck ru bucket run over? None of us really know. You know, it can just keep drip, 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 dripping. But I feel that our, our wheats, uh, our flowers, have, have played a, a significant amount of of a role in that. So I would say that that's probably what makes our ours a little bit different. And working very hard to develop the relationships with large manufacturers to hopefully open up doors, not just for ourselves, but develop a market where other people who want to grow, like we have farmers who come to us and say, you know, we'll grow purple corn, oh, we'll grow barley, we'll grow. And we're like, yeah, it's, it's a long, slow process to, to make it feasible, you know? And you, so you said you chose barley because most of it grown here is for feed. How about purple corn? Why did you choose purple corn? We looked at purple corn again because, again, we saw that there's a huge amount of the, the food movement is, you know, all about superfoods and health claims and all of that. And unfortunately, because of our Canadian climate, there's very few of those ingredients that we can grow here. Um, you know, blueberries on a commercial level, a little bit, but not significantly. Pomegranates, Ikea berries, any of those ones that are the dark purple colors noted for their high anthocyanins, they're not grown in the Canadian climate. So we felt very strongly that there was an opportunity there for us as farmers, but also stewards of the land. What we could we offer to the manufacturing or to the retailer, to the consumer that's actually locally grown, Canadian grown, health benefits of it. And also, we were, we were optimistic that it would be a crop that would help to open up market opportunities to steer away from the yellow conventional corn. 
I'd say definitely that the biggest challenge would be the 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 uh, slow uptake. Uh, just it's not just for me believing in these grains. I mean, they've got Canadian health claims written on them. They've got incredible amount of uh, research and documentation. You know, like with the with the health benefits of the purple corn. Um, it's not just sort of a fun yay color. I mean, they're doing research all over the world on um, the health benefits of the, the purple in food, but specifically corn, the anthocyanins, the antioxidants. Um, there's studies in Japan that are that are doing that with um, introducing that as a feed supplement into animals. So to me, it was just a really common sense thing. Like, why wouldn't we be using this? I think one of the biggest uh, eye-openers were for me is that the, the wheels of change grind exceedingly slow. I mean, even you can finally get yourself a meeting with a small manufacturer who loves your pitch, uh, loves the idea of it, but it could be six months, eight months, a year out before they're able to introduce that product development into their product line. Um, so that to me was like, wow, this nothing turns on a dime, you know? Um, some of the larger manufacturers, you know, it could be two years out before they'll introduce a new product. But in the meantime, you know, it, it's it's a commodity that has to be grown out, has to be stored, has to, and you can't, as farmers, continue to grow out if you don't have a market for it. I'd say the biggest triumph for me is is to, when you when you get to talk to chefs or bakers or home users who who just can't believe the difference in the taste of flour, you know, when they really understand that. You know, a grain is, is, is like a, a tomato. It takes on the flavors of, of the soil and how it's been grown and how it's been stored. And, and you know, they're excited about it. They understand uh, when you talk to them about the full cycle of a seed and, and the fact that no company owns this seed um, in the sense that, you know, we as farmers are able to purchase this seed. Um, and they understand it. I feel like, wow, okay, so, you know, it's a seed of knowledge that they they're grasping. So I, I feel that that's certainly been the biggest triumph. When we can go to a restaurant or we can go into a grocery store or when we can go to a restaurant and, and see on the menu that the grains that we grew on our farm are actually being used and, and people are enjoying them, you know, there's reward in that. It's, it's satisfying as a farmer to know that we've produced something that other people are enjoying as much as we are. Abby Glenquas talking to Shelley Spruitt. Thank you all once again for listening. This week we've had reporting from Abby, Abby G, Darla, Robin, and the show was produced and edited by Abby, and myself, I'm Joe. And a special mention to a reasonably new member of the team is Katie. She has been helping us with the production of this show. Katie is somebody else who emailed us. She was in New York at the time and has uh, gradually worked with us to the stage that she's now making the show with us. She's just part of the team. I guess as ever, I want to communicate my thanks to the farming community. I think just always remember our contribution, your contribution to the world is super important and um, we're here to support that. And thank you. Thank you, Abby, because you are very much a part of the farming community, unlike me. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, toodaloo for now. See you next month.